Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Channel in Art. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with three curators involved with an exhibition on Marston Hartley. And today they're also going to speak with us about the beautifully illustrated and written catalog, Marston Hartley, to accompany the exhibition. And currently are the exhibition uh, is a 2017 at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I'd like to begin by asking each of you to talk a little bit about your backgrounds. Great. Uh, Thanks, Kirsten. Um, My name is Beth Finch, and I'm the Lunder Curator of American Art at the Colby College Museum of Art. Um, The Colby Museum organized uh, Marsden Hartley's Main with the Metropolitan Museum, um, and it premiered in New York at the Metropolitan and then um, traveled here um, recently and opened a couple weeks ago um, here in Waterville, Maine. Um, As the Lunder Curator of American Art, I um, focus on American art um, and also work with contemporary artists in a more international scope. So um, so, uh, my range is is wider than um, simply American art. Thank you. I'm Donna Cassidy. I'm professor of art history and American and New England studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I was brought into this project because I have a background of of interest and research on Marsden Hartley. I published a book on Hartley and New England regional identity in 2005. And so I think that's what drew me to this, this particular project. And I've published a lot on on Hartley and New England regionalism over my over my career. At the University of Southern Maine, I teach a wide variety of courses from 19th and 20th century European art to American art and gender and modern art. And for a long time, I had taught in the American and New England Studies program. And that program really focused on the question of region and place and how artists and writers and public culture is engaged in creating that sense of that sense of place. That sense of place I know we're going to hear throughout the rest of this conversation really seems very important to Marsden Hartley, right? Um, and last but not least, Randall? Yeah, yeah, my name is Randy Griffey and I'm curator uh, in the Department of Modern Contemporary Arts at the Metropolitan and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Hartley many, many years ago um, when I got interested in Hartley in graduate school. And at the Met, I focus on American modernism primarily. And the Met, um, like Colby, actually, has a good fortune of having great depth in the collection of of works by Marston Hartley. Um, So in many ways, um, one reason this project was uh, natural for the two institutions was that it's in a way rooted 
in uh, strengths in the in the collection. Um, I guess we can talk a little bit more about sort of how the how the project came yes. about. Um, uh, I had a previous life as a curator at Amherst College, uh, not so far from Colby, or at least closer to Colby than I am now. And at that point, Beth and I started talking about possibly doing something focused on um, partly at Colby that I might maybe just write something. And um, uh, for a project she had in mind with Donna. And um, when I came to the Met, Beth and I started talking about this project again, and then um, we arranged that the, that the two institutions would actually partner. Uh, and so the um, project grew a little bit, probably in scale, and then it became a two-venue um, exhibition. Um, because, of course, Hartley was between New York and Maine for so much of his career, so it made sense. I'm wondering, based on the depth of the collections and the collaboration, how how did you go about selecting uh, the works that would appear in the exhibition? It was, you know, we started first by uh, getting a sense of all the works out there that seemed potentially to be within the focus. Um, and I would say that the, the main focus, uh, meaning the state of Maine focus, emerged uh, through uh, conversations initially with Donna and then reaching out to Randy. Um, so it really became um, an ongoing conversation that I think is still emerging um, throughout as the exhibition has opened and traveled here. Um, but we began to realize that there was a story to be told that hadn't been told um, or had been told in ways that maybe misrepresented um, aspects of Hartley's career related to his place of origin. Um, and Colby uh, College had been given uh, six paintings by Marston Hartley by the artist Alex Katz, um, who has very close ties to Maine and New York, just as Hartley did. And uh, so we realized here at Colby that we could actually, we could focus on uh, Maine works. Um, so that was the initial impetus there for us. Um, but when we were developing the checklist, we first needed to understand everything that was out there that might be related to um, this theme, this focus. Um, and then I think, um, I don't know, Donna and Randy, you might want to add um, there, but it just became a part of this conversation and, and, and um, an editing process to figure out how to tell how to tell the stories we wanted to tell around this project. Yeah, I think it was uh, basically a three-way conversation constantly with checklists going back and forth and editing. And I think I think we were also trying for certain certain things like getting as many works that haven't been seen very much um, out of private collections, for example. Uh, works like Hartley's glass paintings that have really been have really been shown and are in private collections and having particular big themes like Katahdin well represented with a, a you know a, a dramatic series of canvases that would have a powerful visual impact on the viewer so yeah, so those were some of uh, certainly some of the things that we were trying to keep in mind. You know, bringing some surprises in with again works that haven't been seen, and you know, and really trying to create as powerful a visual impact um, as well as the conceptual um, impact on the viewer. Well, and based on viewing the book, um, I I can confirm to our listeners there is a an incredible array. There are 
many images and some surprises, which leads me to another question. You mentioned telling the story of, of Marsden Hartley or maybe correcting parts of the story. And uh, one of the real, I found very interesting points in the catalog is uh, Marsley's quest to be the painter from Maine. And I wondered if you would discuss a little bit the story you seek to tell through the exhibition and how that might relate to his quest to be the painter from Maine. Randy, this one's made for you. <laughs> well, it, it made for all of this, but I'll, 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 take a, I'll take a swing at it. Um, so Hartley, through the last few years of his life, did promote himself as the painter from Maine, sort of in all, all uh, caps. And, um, you know, looking back from the perspective of the 21st century, that might seem like a little bit of a strange thing for an artist to do. But it was, um, for Hartley, it operated in a range of ways. I mean, uh, I think part of the story that that Beth is alluding to is this sort of range of Hartley's identi public identification and personal identification with his home, which is, on one hand, Hartley really craved a place to call home um, for a range of reasons that we may or may not get into in the course of this uh, conversation, but on the other hand, in the in the 30s, in the heyday of regionalism, so-called uh, regionalism in American art, which is to say Grant Wood, Thomas Hart Benton, John Stuart Curry, and and so on, um, there was also great pressure that Hartley felt to identify with a place and to make his viewing public convinced and his critics convinced that he was connected to that place. Um, so the range I'm alluding to is on one hand sort of deep, deeply felt um, personally, but also there is a kind of uh, purpose, purposefulness, uh, purpose about that deliberateness about his public identification with place in Maine. And with regard to Maine as an artist, you know, he had a great legacy um, to identify with, and specifically, you know, the the artists who preceded him associated with Maine, most of all Winslow Homer, and so Hartley, in a way, um, goes about from about 1937 on, promoting himself in a way as the second coming of Winslow Homer. <laughs> hey. I, I, I'd, invite, I'd invite Beth and Donna to, to pick up at that point. Yeah, I think... You know, the other thing about Hartley is, I mean, he was born in Maine, but then leaves Maine, and Beth can talk a little bit about that first first coming back to Maine in, in 1900. But he, um, after he left Maine and uh, went to New York and then went to Paris and Germany and started this kind of international travel, right, from about 1912 until 1936, where he was in Europe, where he was in Nova Scotia, he was in Mexico, he was in southern France, and throughout his writings during this time, we find someone who is constantly making references back to Maine. And so he claimed later in his career that, you know, Maine was always with him and tried to make that argument <laughs> to his patrons and critics, which didn't always fly very well. Um, but he, you know, for example, when he was in Paris in 1924, 25, 
he was invited to be part of an exhibition of American artists, and he painted two main landscapes um, to be part of that exhibition. So in a sense, he, uh, that was a moment where he proclaimed internationally that he was a painter, a uh, painter of Maine, and certainly tried to use Maine as a way to identify himself as an American artist. He did that in Paris in, in, in 1924 and 25, and he would do that again later in his career in 1937. It really became impossible for him to maintain that life of that international artist in the context of xenophobia, and in the context of nativism, and the context of regionalism in the 1920s and 1930s especially. That's doing you know, I, I think I would just add that in that in that in that first return. So he he left as a teenager, um, joined his family. His father, who had remarried, his uh, Hartley's mother died when he was quite young. And he, he was just eight when his mother died. Um, he eventually joined his father and his stepmother in in Cleveland, and um, was able to secure a stipend um, as a young artist to study in New York. And he did return to Maine in search of what he understood to be his subject, which was the Maine landscape, or at least land, he knew landscape was going to be a subject, and he and he came to Maine to find it. Um, so, so that that was something that was uh, we felt was important to highlight that that the Maine um, Hartley ultimately embraced in his early career was quite distinct from the Maine of his upbringing, which was Lewiston. Um, and and anyone who knows Maine knows that Lewiston is, um, was then and is to a certain degree still now an, an industrial area, or now it's post-industrial, but at the time it was uh, truly was um, one of the great centers of the textile industry. Um, so, so those first paintings that Hartley found, um, or the area Hartley found to sort of claim for his art was, was a... Um, was an adopted Maine, um, and and it was on the border with New Hampshire, looking to uh, the White Mountains, um, spectacularly beautiful area in an area called Lovell, Maine, um, with a lake along it. And there he he discovered as well some of the subjects that um, span the full um, length of or full length trajectory of his career. Um, most notably the mountain. Um, so mountain subjects became quite prominent, but also a kind of compositional schema that he would use repeatedly. Um, so water in the foreground um, and this mountain pushing forward often with trees on to the left and right, framing um, those elements, and sometimes um, the suggestion of a settlement or farm um, that he could use over and over in, in his career. Um, and we wanted to highlight as well um, in that early period, which I think people don't know as well, and has sometimes been seen as derivative, just truly how radical it was in advance of the German paintings for which he's so well known um, and perhaps best known. Um, so that was something that we felt was was important to, to represent in the selections we made for the exhibition and also how we addressed it in the various essays. Yes, and um, your comments make me... Um think about another argument that is presented in the book that landscape was a modernist testing ground for Hartley. And I wonder if you might elaborate on that idea. 
Donna, do you want to? Uh... Well, I don't know okay. if landscape per se, but I, but certainly in those early works, uh, in particular, we see an artist who is experimental, who is seeing the landscape, but at the same time not representing it um, in detail as he would have seen it. It's being transformed by this modernist eye, right? That is abstracting, it's exaggerating the colors that he's seeing, creating a highly textured uh, canvas or board in which, you know, you can still see subject matter, but increasingly, and especially in some, some of the works that he produces during this time, we see a landscape that is very close to abstraction. The patterns of birch trees are in the thick of an autumnal uh, foliage. And, you know, uh, so, so these, these works were definitely a place where he could, you know, again, test out those ideas. And we can kind of see the same thing operating in those late paintings. It's a different visual language, in a sense, that he's using in many ways. But it's still, uh, it's not naturalistic. Uh, it's primitivist. It's rough and rugged style. And the figures are treated in, you know, in a um, unnaturalistic manner, exaggerated forms. Um, and so Hartley's, you know, trying to, I think, in those late May paintings, kind of taking the language of regionalism and really making it something very personal and something very modern that is, you know, different from his much more um, realistic counterparts, um, like uh, like Grant Wood, for example, and, and most most dramatically, I think. It's really. I would just add, add that it was, um, you know, it was, it was a modernism that had, and I think you've alluded to this, Donna, but a sort of anti-modern side to it. So not representing um, the industry that that he grew up in, uh, and and looking also to ways. Uh, so, for instance, there's a drawing called. Um, Old Maid Crocheting, a title that Hartley gave that work, an interest in subjects of, you know, perhaps um, ways that are passing away or that had passed away by the early 20th century. Um, so it, a, a modernism that is somehow separate from, um, from the life he lived, which was quite, quite cosmopolitan. A really example of that anti-modernity, too, are, are those, those series of glass paintings that he did, which were, again, drawing from the past, drawing from this folk tradition, folk art tradition of reverse paintings on glass, but using that manner to create flat, decorative style, um, again, a kind of abstracted style that many modernist artists saw as being much more authentic, expressive, and and real in terms of the, artist, the artist's emotions. Um, so that sense of, um, you know, that, that, that particular period when he's in a gunk in 1917 painting these paintings on glass, he's using uh, a language that is very modernistic and, and, ex and, and really expressing himself as he had also seen German artists um, in, um, between 1913 and 15 when he was in Germany. Artists like Kandinsky and Gabriela Munter were also working in the same technique. So, we, again, drawing from, experimenting from all of these different strains uh, that we see in his main paintings. Kristen, do you want me to? Sure, please. Um, well, it's, it just would reiterate the point that it's an, a kind of an a 
oxymoron, but it is a kind of anti-modern modernism. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the um, Hartley was engaged in so many strains of early 20th century American modernism, but the one strain he completely missed, and it's revealing to me um, that this is the case, but the kind of streamlined industrial aesthetic of somebody like Charles Sheeler, or even to some extent O'Keefe, despite the fact that he and O'Keefe were often are often discussed in similar terms, but that kind of streamlined, slick aesthetic never came from Hartley's brush. And that, I think, is, is revealing in the sense that, as Don and Beth were saying, is his sensibilities from beginning to end always gravitated to the kind of anti-modern um, modernisms, modernisms, and I would put that um, in the plural, um, throughout throughout his entire career. Um, and, um, yeah, and this, this show, I think, means to kind of call that out through the lens of Maine, which, as Beth, Beth said from the very beginning, he omitted the industrial Maine. Uh, and his, his landscape of Maine isn't even populated in most cases, or in any case, really, let alone industrialized. So it, we learned from this conversation and from the book that you mentioned oxymoron, or a, contra a little contradiction, what a complex character Hartley really was. And I, another expression I recall, um, an, an ambivalent prodigal son. So if we bring together these ideas, another question, I guess, must be the assessment of Hartley. In particular, Clement Greenberg, I believe, had a few things to say about Hartley. So how does he come down to us? Beth, do you want to kick that off? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to referring to the uh, Hartley's German paintings. Um, at the time of Hartley's death, he was uh, really had finally uh, gained some recognition. He was he um, had was having exhibitions and uh, artworks were being purchased by private collectors and uh, prominent museums. Um, the first right, the first painting Randy to enter the collection of the Metropolitan was the Lobsterman uh, painting, right? Right. So, so he um, he gained the success he had long been seeking through the main works. Um, and if you look at the obituaries that appeared in Time magazine and Life magazine, they all reference in various ways um, his connection to man, uh, to Maine. I think that the Time magazine has a headline that says the main man um, and, and Life magazine some, says something to the effect of fame finally catches up with the poet painter of Maine. Uh, so, so Hartley died um, having gained that success he'd been seeking, but in the post-war era, uh, those main paintings fell out of the regional, regionalism in general, um, fell out of favor, and uh, in, in large part because of people like uh, Clement Greenberg, um, and it was the German paintings that became the, the most famous, um, and perhaps the most famous of all of those is Portrait of a German Officer, which is also in the Met's collection. Um, so, so that was something we want, we felt needed to be corrected, that um, a better sense of where things were historically at the time of of Hartley's death, um, and there was something else I wanted to add there, but maybe maybe you two want to chime in with something there related to that. No, I think um, you know I would just elaborate on Beth's point that the the 
the, the show and the book aspires to align Hartley's output as an artist with the way in which he felt that he would be remembered. It would never have occurred to Hartley in a million years that Portrait of a German Officer, one of the you know great German pictures, that that would be how he's known in textbooks. Because during his lifetime, those pictures, at least in the U.S., were very coolly received. You know, there wasn't so much a um, market or demand for a kind of European modernist aesthetic in the States when he showed those here in New York. So, um, again, we're, we're, in a way, trying to write, and when I say write, I mean R-I-G-H-T, not W-R-I-T-E, <laughs> write history, um, with regard to Hartley through the lens of, lens of Maine. It's, it's actually, you know, I, I, I'm, one of the reasons I, I, I love this project so much is it's audacious to omit, as we did, his most famous works. And we did. Uh, they were not, even, even at the Met, uh, where we, as Beth said, um, we hold Portrait of a German Officer, uh, it wasn't in the exhibition. Uh, it was alluded to, but um, there was nowhere to be found in the, in the exhibition. And I, I was just add too that it was that first group of main paintings that first brought partly to uh, kind of attention um, to the attention of Alfred Stieglitz. So that first main period too has its own history mm-hmm. and uh, and our attempt to kind of recover the significance and importance of that as a moment when Hartley kind of became known as not necessarily the main painter, but certainly a uh, leading avant-garde painter that launched his career and allowed him to go to Paris and do all these other things. So that first main period, too, I think has a great significance. And, um, and uh, re-looking at that period in terms of not so much the main subjects, but um, certainly the, again, that avant-garde style, the experimental style that we see operating in those works is really important. And, then, and to just add there, too, is that the, that great early period has really been lost in the shadow of the German period that followed. Um, and so this was also, I think, the goal of the show is to, to bring that work out from under, under that shadow. Kirsten, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about the um, complexity of Hartley and, and this issue of, of um, ambivalence. Um, I think um, having had the pleasure of being in the galleries and, and um, seeing the paintings here and also in New York uh, and, and drawings for that matter, which are an important component of this project, um, I, that's one thing that seems to resonate with people is this, um, because it is an exhibition about one artist's um, connection and um, and deployment or evocation in various ways of his place of origin, um, that, that he played it both ways, or he felt it both ways. Um, so a good example of that is in the late works, there's a painting entitled uh, Ghosts of the Forest. Um, it's a work in the collection of the Brooklyn Museum. And just next to it here in the installation here is a painting called Abundance. Um, So in one case, um, Ghosts of the Forest are these um, logs that have been stranded on a beach, uh, forlorn. Somehow they never really entered the market or came to much use, it would be suggested, and perhaps is suggesting um, as well, since they were painted just prior to Hartley's death or in the years prior to Hartley's death, that 
um, there's some kind of suggestion of, of um, reflection on end of life. Uh, and then uh, work like abundance, which has piles of logs um, uh, piled up high, really filling the entire picture plane as if they were some sort of mountain in their own right. Um, so, so that sense of um, a relationship to place that is quite personal, um, but also has um, national significance. So um, Maine, not simply being Maine, but Maine that uh, regionally figured within how New England was conceptualized at that moment and really across the span or much of um, the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, and that complexity carries over to, again, the way that he represents Maine in that um, he said at one point that he was not a book of the month club painter, and um, yet he certainly draws from a lot of the very popular imagery of the time, the, you know, pictures of lighthouses along the shore, waves crashing along the coast, images that were really part of the tourist culture. But when we look at those paintings by Hartley, there's, there's something askew, there's something that's it's a little dark, there's something that's not quite right. The, um, the Portland, in the painting of Portland Headlight, the, uh, the lighthouse seems like it's going to be toppled over by the waves. It's not that that very solid form that guides fishermen and sailors, right? Or the uh, many of his late, late landscapes are, have this dark tonality to it, not this kind of bland lightness that, um, that uh, certainly is part of Again, the popular imagery of time and popular painters of the of the early part of the 20th century. So there definitely is this kind of dark side of of Hartley, this kind of Stephen King uh, side of Hartley's Maine, um, where we see that um, that dark and destructive uh, quality that uh, appears in his very early works and is a constant theme throughout um, throughout his paintings throughout his career. With this said, I'm trying to picture him teaching painting um, to students at the Bangor Society of Art. I think this was earlier in his career. Um, sort of, how did he um, interact, I would say, with the public or if he was with students? Um, can you speak to his, What would that be another persona that he adopted when he was in that type of role? Well, I don't know that we have a lot of records of his interactions with students, and I would hazard a guess that he wasn't a particularly successful teacher <laughs> since the examples or moments um, that he made an attempt to do so were really quite brief and short. I think there was an attempt to do so when he was in Lewiston um, in 19, 1906, as well as in Bangor, um, I think, in 19, 1939. Um, I don't know of any uh, records or responses um, to Hartley, Hartley as as a teacher. Um, he did he did try, try to create though this kind of public persona. I mean, he uh, there's a wonderful photograph of him in the Bangor Daily News, you know, standing next to a Katahdin painting, and he's dressed with a kind of flannel shirt looking very much like the Mainer, uh, you know, the kind of working class Mainer um, that he was, you know, was trying to identify with at that time. Um, again, I don't know how well that sold to Bangor audiences, uh, but it certainly was part of 
the selling of him and his paintings to a New York audience um, during during this particular time time period. It is hard not to laugh, to smile a little bit to think about the you know the the proud in a way autodidact actually teaching yeah. art, right? I mean, yeah. because he he prided himself on having so little formal training himself. So I don't know how well that scenario would translate into the classroom. Like Donna said, it was it would have been, it was pretty brief. I mean, he made great and he made great efforts too to try to. Um, cultivate an audience in Maine, um, but I think again that was somewhat less successful. He did, you know, there were all these letters um, where he's trying to get um, a stamp of approval as a painter and poet of Maine from the state of state of Maine library, state librarian of Maine, um, which he eventually does. But I think, and he wanted to have exhibitions in Maine, um, and so it's really, you know, quite bittersweet that he finally does have this great exhibition um, at, at, at Colby um, about his main paintings and all of these paintings that he did of Maine are kind of brought back. Remind me, Donna, isn't it in that exchange of letters he suggests that he may leave all of his remaining work to the state, right? I mean, wasn't yeah. the plan on leaving yeah. a great yeah. body of work to the state? It never happened, but um, he's very serious about it. Yeah, and I think it was I think it was that drive to really cultivate that identity as the main the main artist, and not just for the New York audience to really connect back with his homeland. Um, and right, like, and right, and he gave a painting in 1907, I think, to the or 1908 to the Lewiston Public Library. It's one of the it's the earliest surviving work. In this exhibition, there's one slightly earlier painting. Um, he painted the facade or the front of, of an image of, of uh, Walt Whitman's home. Um, but that that even that gesture of giving a painting to a place that he had at that point used quite a bit. He um, used the Lewiston Public Library, which was a quite new um, Carnegie Library at that point. It did not exist. Um, when he left um, Lewiston as a teenager, it, it was there when he returned, and he made good use of it. And and I think um, what um, you mentioned, Randy, of, of being a sort of self-taught to a certain degree, even though he did have formal training, much of that he set aside in, in how he went about painting and, and was self-taught also, I think, as a, as a writer. He was a writer who, who learned by reading, um, and, um, and he, and I think one of the fascinations fascinations of this project and of Hartley generally is um, how much he loved to read and how um, and how closely he would identify with the writers and the artists um, with whom he identified so he would feel them you know if you when you read him writing either his essays or if he's referring to artists he um, loves and admires in his um, letters it's a real sense of kinship um, it's, it's quite a strong identification and I think that that is um, that comes through in his work as well I was interested to note um, from reading your book that he was strongly influenced by Gertrude Stein right when and uh, wrote some an autobiography is that also in a stream of consciousness type of a um, style or more ordered, I guess. Hartley's autobiography it actually exists in several different different forms, um, but it is pretty. Um, it's, it's unlike 
Gertrude Stein's writing, um, but I think her autobiography, Alice Betopus, is perhaps one of her most readable mm -hmm. um, books, right? <laughs> um, and Hartley's, Hartley's autobiography is very much chronological and very understandable in that way. I mean, it's also a document that I think, you know, he's writing late, late in his career, and so the, a lot of his retrospective thoughts, I think, have to be kind of taken with a grain of salt. I think he's really, you know, looking looking back at a time, you know, where he's initially a fairly unsuccessful artist still in the 1930s when he starts to write this. So, yeah, um, I don't know how, I, I don't know how much more than the, I think the, certainly the idea of writing an autobiography after reading Gertrude Stein's autobiography was really what inspired him uh, more so than the form or actually her usual way of writing. Mm -hmm. It's really intriguing. You know, as I'm reading through the book, I, I hear everything you're saying. I, oh, this kind of regionalist approach and identity. And then suddenly we have Gertrude Stein and other very avant-garde figures popping in. So uh, for those who are listening, the Mars, the stories of Marsden Hartley that we get from the exhibition, the catalog, are really, they will challenge things we were probably all taught in our art history classes. And maybe as a last question, I, I would like to ask you, do you have another project on the burner now? Uh, not as this trio, as much as we would like <laughs> like there to be. So, um, you know, who knows in the future, um, we're, we're all working on... Um, on various things. Um, we're uh, here related to the exhibition at, at Colby. We're organizing a symposium that will take place here on October 6th. And um, Donna, we're very um, honored, will be the keynote. And, and Randy will also be here for that. So related to this, um, that's immediately on the horizon here. And that will focus on um, New England modernism. I'm, in relation to regionalism specifically, and we'll look um, kind of past the um, into the post-war era. So regionalism we normally associate, particularly with the 20s and 30s. Um, it will look uh, deeper into um, the 20th century, um, in particular to take in um, important places some of the artist colonies that were developed here earlier. Um, so starting in, in the early 20th century, and then later with places quite close to here in Waterville, Maine, um, like the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture, which has been so influential. Um, so that's something related specifically to the exhibition that we'll all be involved with in, in, some, in some way. Is there something you, wanted, you two wanted to mention? Well, as, as Beth said, um, this, this trio isn't cooking anything up right at the moment, but, you know, hope springs eternal that something maybe, again, down the road will. Um, I mean, Hartley is always a presence, you know, in the two museums involved because the the collections, as I said, you know, so, you know, Hartley, um, the collections are, are strong in the artist's work. So Hartley will always be um, present. And um, I mean, I think for me, and I guess this is going off topic just a little bit, what I think is wonderful about the moment that we're in kind of intellectually and art historically is that, you know, that this art from the 30s um, can be looked at kind of with fresh eyes, I think, because a generation of art historians were really, or even more than one generation, 
uh, was trained to really dismiss it outright as kitsch and as um, nativist in a very narrow way. And, um, you know, some of my work at the Met, including this project, um, has been, I think, to push back against this knee-jerk um, reaction against artists of the 30s um, that has, again, kind of um, worked its way through a, a generational shift. But, um, but um, I, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Making this um, project all the more important, I would argue, in terms of just the scope of art history, um, another reason for those who are listening to definitely get the book and in, you know get more about the the new storytelling and the changes that um, the curators we're speaking with really want to see happen and working of course always from the art itself is there anything else um, you would like in the final moments here to tell us about the exhibition or anything I know we couldn't cover everything which means people need to buy the book um, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that there's also a great uh, chapter in the book um, by two Met conservators, um, Isabel Duvernois and Rachel Mustalish. Um, we were lucky here at Colby to send our loans to the exhibition a good year and a half in advance. And, um, and we used that pool of works, the, the Colby College works, and also the works in the Met collection, so something around 14 or 15 works. Um, they used them to um, analyze um, and under better understand Hartley's materials and methods, and um, were able to uh, publish uh, new research on that. So that's something we're very proud of. And, and I would add, too, just as an additional plug for the book is that there's a chapter uh, on Hartley's writing, uh, new writing on Hartley's own writing about Maine um, by the head of creative writing at Yale University, Richard Deming. Um, so, you know, Beth and Don and I touch at different points in our work on Hartley's writing, but, but Richard really focuses more in depth on it. So there's that dimension uh, of Hartley's art artistry in the book as well. Right, and last but not least, in fact, it's the first thing in the book, I believe, is um, a great chronology uh, by Andrew Gelfand, who until recently was a curatorial fellow here um, at the Colby Museum, and uh, it places Hartley and Maine in, the con in a national context um, and includes um, and some of those great images that are in the book and throughout, and throughout the essays as well. Yes, that's a fantastic um, element, I felt, of the book, the timeline, cultural events, more than the typical timeline. Well, I would like to thank all of you so much for speaking with us today. And um, again, we were speaking with Donna Cassidy, Elizabeth Finch, and Randy Griffey. And um, the book, which is distributed by Yale University Press and published by the Metropolitan Museum of Art, is certainly available. And again, thank you for listening today. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>